Okay, so this, uh, this talk's going to be based on a, a blog post that I wrote uh, about a year ago, and, and I'm not going to go much beyond what I say in the blog post in this talk, but I'm, uh, I am thinking of trying to develop it into a, a, a proper paper, so I'll be uh, pleased to hear your comments. Okay, so this is um, Oscar Groening, who was an um, SS corporal uh, during the Second World War, and he was assigned to work in the Auschwitz uh, extermination camp. And one of his uh, roles there was to um, collect and guard and log the possessions of, uh, of Jews who had been um, either admitted to the camp or sent straight to the gas chambers. And last year, following a change in German law that allowed for him to be prosecuted, he was uh, tried as an accessory to the murder of at least 300,000 people. And he was found guilty and he was sentenced to four years in prison. I think he was uh, 94 years old at the time. So this, this sentence wasn't completely uncontroversial, and there was some resistance to it. In fact, there was even some opposition to it from the um, Auschwitz survivors who had testified against him. And I think uh, uh, a number of ethical questions can, can be raised against it, and in fact were raised against it. So one question is, um, was Gröning's culpability somehow undermined by the fact that uh, many of his generation would have acted similarly uh, in his position, in, given his conservative German upbringing? Uh, and I, on this question, I refer you to a blog post that Roger wrote on this uh, topic also about a year ago. Um, another question was whether he ought to have been offered mercy given his rather frail health condition um, and the fact that he had made some um, expressions of, some quite heavily qualified expressions of remorse, um, um, or the fact that he had used his experiences to try to undermine Holocaust denial in the 1980s. And then a third question, and this was what my blog post was about, was simply whether his crimes lay too far in the distant past for punishment or for normal punishment to be uh, warranted. So it's this third question that I want to uh, address in this talk. Uh, but I want to address it in a slightly more general level, so I'm going to be asking, should crimes from the distant past be punished? And if so, should they be punished as severely as recent crimes? Now, I, I'm going to make a number of assumptions in answering this question. I'm just going to mention uh, one of them uh, for reasons of time, uh, which is the second one on this list. Um, so, so I'm not interested in whether distant past crimes should be punished less severely or not at all, simply because one of the standard grounds for diminished punishment uh, applies, like that the, um, the offender has poor health uh, or has made substantial attempts at rectifying uh, his wrongdoing uh, or has made substantial expressions of remorse. So I'm going to assume that we're talking about crimes and, and criminals who are such that if their crime was recent, uh, we wouldn't think that any uh, punishment discount or exemption would be justified. So the question is whether there's something special about uh, crimes from the distant past that indicates that they shouldn't be punished. Now, in answering this question, obviously the answer is going to depend on what you think the purpose of criminal punishment is. So I'm going to run through some of the most obvious, plausible candidates now. So suppose first that the purpose of punishment is to prevent recidivism, to, to prevent reoffending by the individual who's being punished, either through incapacitating them, uh, facilitating their rehabilitation in some way, or deterring them from offending uh, in the future. Now, if you think this is the purpose of punishment, it's, it's pretty difficult to see how punishment could be justified in at least typical cases of distant past crimes, because in most of these such cases, the, uh, 
risk of reoffending is very low, even in the absence of punishment. So if you think of a case like Oscar Gerning, it's very unlikely that he's going to engage in further um, genocidal atrocities uh, in the future. Um, and, and, and even in cases where there is still a significant risk of reoffending, um, it's it seems unlikely that we would have sufficient evidence for that risk to justify punishment. Certainly the fact that someone had committed a crime 60 years ago wouldn't generally give us sufficient evidence for reoffending to justify punishment, I think. So let's suppose instead that the purpose of punishment is to deter offending by uh, other individuals besides the person who's being punished. So this is what's often called general deterrence. <coughs> Again, uh, on this view, I think it's uh, difficult to see how punishment could be justified, at least in typical cases. Even prompt punishment seems to have a fairly modest deterrent effect, um, except in cases where the punishment is almost certain to occur. Uh, and you might think that um, the prospect of being punished 50 or 60 years into the future is going to have an extremely weak deterrent effect because it's going to be, it's never going to be certain, presumably. Uh, and given that people substantially discount the future, we might expect that the deterrent effect would be very weak. And again, I think it would be likely to be so weak that it would be difficult to see how the costs of punishments could be justified. So those are some initial problems with uh, justifying punishment on those two theories of, of criminal punishment. Okay, so what about retributivism, which I'm going to understand is the view that the purpose of punishment is to inflict suffering that's proportionate to the offender's culpability. You might think that this, is a more promise, this would be a more promising way of justifying punishment in these cases of distant past crimes, because you might think uh, if you're culpable for some crime, then uh, unless you do something like make substantial efforts to rectify one's wrongdoing, um, one will kind of remain culpable uh, forevermore um, and, and, and we might be able to justify punishment on that kind of basis. But now suppose that we accept, um, accept uh, what I'm going to call a Parfitian account of what matters in survival. So, and this is not quite Derek Parfit's actual view, slightly schematic version of it. But suppose we accept the view that um, uh, as the psychological connections between a person's younger self and older self weaken, the moral and prudential relationships between them uh, more closely approximate those between two different persons. Uh, and, that, and at some point, the connections become sufficiently weak that with respect to morality and prudence, it's as if uh, the two uh, selves, the earlier self and the, and the later self, are uh, two different people from the point of view of uh, self-interest and morality. Um, so that's a, that's a view about the relevance of uh, psychological relations between uh, a person's selves at two different times to morality and self-interest more generally. We might think that this will entail a more specific parallel view about uh, the relevance of psychological connectedness to culpability in particular. So I'll call this the Parfitian account of culpability and it holds that uh, as the psychological connections between a person's younger self and older self weaken, the older self's culpability for a wrong committed by the younger self uh, diminishes. And then we might think at some point the connections uh, will become sufficiently weak that the older self is no longer at all culpable for uh, the younger self's uh, wrongdoing. So suppose we accept this kind of account of culpability and then consider a case where um, an, an older individual does seem to be only quite weakly connected psychologically to the younger self. So consider a case of an 80-year-old who committed a crime when he was 20 
Uh, and suppose that the 80-year-old has very few memories of himself at 20. He shares very few of the psychological traits and dispositions that his 20-year-old self possessed. And suppose also that his 20-year-old self had very few um, forward-looking um, attitudes or mental states, expectations, hopes or desires regarding uh, his 80-year-old self. So it might think this is a case where the 80-year-old and the 20-year-old are only weakly uh, connected. And so that on the Parfitian account of culpability, you would have to say either that the 80-year-old is not at all culpable for the crime committed by uh, his earlier 20-year-old self, in which case um, any punishment would be disproportionate. And so on a retributivist point of view, we wouldn't be able to justify punishment. It would be like punishing a child for the sins of uh, her parents. Or perhaps more plausibly, we might say that only some of the 20-year-old's culpability is inherited by the 80-year-old, uh, and that will suggest that the, the maximal proportional punishment will at least be reduced. Um, so we'd have to uh, discount the punishment compared to a case in which we were punishing a recent crime. So um, the, the more general point that I'm trying to suggest there is that if we accept um, Retributivism, and we accept a Parfitian account of culpability, according to which culpability diminishes over time as psychological connections weaken, then I think we're going to have to say that um, we should exempt offenders from punishment, or at least discount the punishment that they are given uh, in cases of distant past crimes, at least in many such cases. Uh, and in fact, I think that that uh, point can be expanded to many other uh, accounts of the purposes of criminal justice, so I don't think it just applies to uh, retributivism. So, so actually many accounts of criminal punishment, even if they hold that the purpose of punishment is not to inflict proportionate suffering, um, nevertheless hold that there's a, there's a kind of upper limit on how much punishment we can impose that is set by considerations of proportionality. So for example, many people who think that the purpose of punishment is in fact to prevent the individual from re-offending or to deter others from offending. Uh, or as to perhaps express some kind of, or communicate some kind of um, social disapproval of, uh, of criminal offending. Many people who accept those kinds of views nevertheless think that um, uh, a punishment is impermissible if it imposes um, suffering that is disproportionate in the sense of being uh, greater than uh, would be required by uh, the individual's culpability, or that would be appropriate to the individual's culpability. So if we think there is this kind of upper limit on punishment set by considerations of proportionality, or it's often called negative, a negative retributivist constraint, and if we think that culpability diminishes over time as psychological connections weaken, then this uh, upper limit on punishment, this constraint, will tighten over time and will suggest that a, a reduced amount of punishment would uh, be justified. And maybe no punishment would be justified in the case that culpability diminishes to zero. Okay, so that seems to be one kind of potential implication of a, of a Parfitian view on many different theories of criminal punishment. And I'm not suggesting that it's Parfit's actual view, although he, uh, in fact, I think it's almost certainly not his current view, but it is consistent with some of the things that he says, uh, for example, in Reasons and Persons. So in that book, he says, uh, when some convict is now less closely connected to himself at the time of his crime, he deserves less punishment. If the connections are very weak, he may deserve none. Now, uh, Parfit um, thinks that this is actually a kind of an intuitively plausible implication of his view. He thinks it's plausible that uh, we should punish distant past crimes less severely than we would punish recent crimes. 
But it seems to me that that's not uh, always the case. If, if I think of, it, say, a version of the Oscar Groening case, where the or original offending, where the, you know the individual was actually a very active participant, for example, in genocidal activities. Um, and where that individual then kind of expressed no significant remorse for what they did, made no significant attempts to rectify their earlier wrongdoing. In that case, it seems to me there's at least in some intuitive pressure to say that um, we should punish the individual just as severely um, if we catch them now than we would if we caught them just after the Second World War. So what I want to do in the last few minutes is to consider how one might um, potentially resist this idea that we should discount punishments uh, or exempt individuals from punishment in the case of distant past crimes. So I think there are a number of kind of strategies that one could take. Uh, one possibility would be to maintain that actually only a very weak kind of psychological connectedness is required for an individual's culpability to be preserved over time. So for example, someone might argue um, if one commits a crime and if one does nothing significant to rectify one's uh, wrong, that kind of expresses some kind of ex implicit uh, endorsement of one's previous wrongdoing, and you might think that that kind of connection itself is sufficient to preserve culpability. Another possible strategy would be to reject all um, theories of punishment that include this negative retributivist constraint, so you could argue that proportionality to culpability is just irrelevant to the amount that we can punish people, although I think that there are potentially problems for justifying punishment of distant past crimes on other views as well, as I mentioned at the outset. And then a third strategy, and this is kind of hinted at by Parfit himself, although he doesn't develop the idea, would be to um, appeal to the concept of complicity, which is the concept that you can do wrong by being associated in some way with the wrongdoing of other individuals. So we could treat the 80-year-old as effectively a different person from the 20-year-old, but we could maybe say the 80-year-old still should be punished for the 20-year-old's crime because the 80-year-old is like a kind of accomplice. Uh, to the wrongdoing of the uh, of the twenty year old. Now I'm not going to say anything about those three strategies, uh, except to say that I think they all face um, fairly significant problems. Uh, and what I want to do is very briefly propose my own suggestion for how we might try to justify punishment in these cases, or justify more punishment than would be suggested by the kind of uh, Parfitian thoughts that I was outlining. So my suggestion is that we could try to justify punishment in these cases by appealing not to the, the offender's culpability for their initial crime, but by appealing to their culpability for ongoing wrongdoing that they've been perpetrating <coughs> since uh, the original crime was committed. So I think that uh, criminal offenders might have been guilty of ongoing wrongdoing uh, since the time they committed a crime. Well, my thought is that they might be guilty of a failure to rectify the, the wrongdoing. So it's plausible that when you commit a, a, a a crime, if, it, if it's also a moral wrong at least, if it's a serious moral wrong, it's plausible that you thereby acquire some obligation to uh, rectify that wrong. And there are many different views about how one could rectify one's wrongdoing, and it might depend uh, on the nature of the, of the wrong, but you know, perhaps you should issue an apology to your victim or to the victim's family. Perhaps you should try to correct the harm that one has, has caused, if that's possible, or compensate for it if it's not possible. Um, you might think that just doing other good works is a way of kind of rectifying uh, one's earlier wrong. And then some people think that uh, submitting to criminal punishment is itself a way of rectifying one's earlier wrong. But regardless of the details of how one thinks one can rectify uh, an earlier wrong, it's plausible that 
when you commit a serious crime, you require some obligation to rectify it. And if you don't uh, fulfill that obligation, and I'm assuming that we're talking about cases where there has been no substantial rectification, then it might seem you're guilty of a further wrong, uh, the wrong of omitting to rectify a wrong that one has an obligation to rectify. And I would suggest that we could perhaps punish individuals in these cases of distant past cr uh, wrongdoing, distant past crime, for their failure to rectify that wrong rather than for the original, uh, original crime. Now, now, one potential problem with this suggestion is that um, if you accept a kind of Parfitian picture of what matters in survival, then you presumably will think that the obligation to rectify a wrong eventually dissolves over time, because at some point you're effectively a different person from the purposes of morality to the person who committed a crime, and we wouldn't normally hold someone uh, to be under an obligation to rectify a wrong committed by someone else. We wouldn't normally expect children to rectify the wrongs committed by their parents. But even so, I think it's possible that we could justify punishment in these cases by appealing to the failure of rectification. So suppose we're talking about a case where someone uh, committed a crime at 20 and then at 80 they are brought before the courts and we're considering whether to punish them. And suppose we think punishment couldn't be justified because the 80-year-old is so, for the initial crime, because the punishment is so, the, sorry, the 80-year-old is so weakly connected psychologically to the 20-year-old that culpability for that crime has dissipated to zero. But let's suppose that after committing this crime, um, this individual uh, had an obligation to rectify their wrong, and let's suppose that that uh, obligation persisted for 20 years before it kind of dissolved away due to these issues of uh, weakening psychological connections. So the person, and that this red line is meant to indicate the, the period over which this individual had a, a duty to, an obligation to rectify their wrong. And suppose that they didn't fulfill that duty, that they didn't do anything to rectify their wrong, then we can say that they're guilty of a further wrong, which is the failure to rectify the initial crime. And perhaps this would be enough to justify some punishment of the 80-year-old. We might think that even though the 80-year-old isn't sufficiently connected to the 20-year-old to justify punishment, they are sufficiently connected to the 40-year-old, and the 40-year-old was still uh, perpetrating uh, a wrong. So punishment might be justified. But maybe we don't think that that would work either. Maybe we think that the connection between the 40-year-old and the 80-year-old is also too weak to justify any kind of punishment. Still, it seems to me that we could tell a story that would enable punishment to be justified uh, in this kind of case. So now consider the, the uh, situation of this person between the ages of 40 and 60. During this age range, we might think, um, well, the individual no longer has an obligation to rectify their initial wrong, but plausibly, they do still have an obligation to rectify their second wrong, which was their failure to rectify the initial wrong, because that was a wrong that they were committing up until the age of 40. Uh, and we might think that that obligation to rectify that wrong will also persist for some further number of years. So let's suppose that persists for a further 20 years. Then there seems to be uh, another 20-year period where uh, obligation of rectification is owed. And if nothing is done to rectify that wrong, then a further wrong is committed. And that's the wrong of failing to rectify the earlier failure of rectification. And you know, I think you can see how this goes. The idea is that you could kind of uh, iterate this story. Uh, and get the result that this person is guilty of some kind of ongoing failure of rectification. Um, uh, and then back to this day, they are still uh, committing a wrong, which is a failure to uh, rectify some earlier failure of rectification. So my suggestion is that we could justify to this, we could appeal to this kind of recursive account of 
phase of rectification to justify punishment. Uh, and in fact, I think that this kind of view could potentially justify punishment on many different uh, views about the purposes of criminal punishment. Um, so my, so my, suggestion, my claims would be that it could justify punishment in some cases where there's actually no culpability remaining for the initial crime and that it could reduce the punishment discount that ought to, ought to be applied in cases where there is some uh, culpability for the initial crime but it's been substantially reduced. Uh, I'm not going to argue for this view now because I basically don't have any time. Um, uh, I was going to briefly say something about what I think is the most powerful objection to the view, but I think I probably should uh, not do that for reasons of time either, so I'll leave it open to you to uh, raise objections in the discussion. Thanks.